0: Welcome to the College of Europe podcast, where we debate European affairs and more.
1: Welcome on this new episode of the College of Europe podcast. You will listen here to a discussion in the framework of the conference series, Global Europe in the Real New Millennium. Jonathan White, Professor of Politics at LSE, Present and discuss his work with Christopher Bickerton, professor of modern European politics at Cambridge and visiting professor at the college. They exchange views on the topic Emergency Europe, Patterns and Prospects, and present the main result from White's book, Politics of Last Resort, Governing by Emergency in the European Union. They also reflect on what they entail in light of contemporary developments and the post-pandemic world. This conference was organised by the European General Studies Department, led by Didier-Georg Enjoyed Enjoy the conversation, and see you soon for some new episodes. Good evening to all of you, thank you for having me here. I'm going to be talking about a topic that's been of some interest to me for some years. Of course, I started writing about the European Union when I was a citizen of the European Union. And as that ceases to be the case, obviously that changes one's uh, relationship a little bit to, to the subject matter. So I now find interest and, and value of studying the EU somewhat more intellectually perhaps rather than through the kind of the uh, quotidian concerns of a citizen who sees this as uh, of uh, immediate rulemaking significance over daily life. And of course it also changes one's position somewhat given everything that's happened in britain in recent years to uh, initiate a discussion about the constitutional strengths and also weaknesses of the european union in the context of the uh, all too visible constitutional challenges facing britain at the moment as an interesting situation in which to be speaking we in britain have clearly just been through a 45 day prime minister who uh, probably would have had a shorter premiership if our queen hadn't also died in the in the middle of that So everything I'm going to say about the constitutional shortcomings um, of the European Union and problems which deserve further analysis, I think is uh, significant for the non-EU citizens amongst us, because this is clearly the major power on our doorstep and I think has enduring significance for, for Europe as a whole. But also because I think the European Union is a context in which one can find questions arising that have a much wider context to them. So we'll be talking about things to do with the concentration of power on executive bodies on individuals perhaps even the personalization of power questions to do with the limits of courts and parliaments and so on and these of course are all issues that go far beyond the european context and are being explored around the world and questions of emergency government are almost the sort of one of the key themes i think of 21st century politics after 9-11 politics after every crisis we've had in the 2010s and beyond so i come to the european union Because I find this is a fascinating place to study questions of contemporary political significance that are anything but exclusive to the European Union and its particular context. So my point of departure, I'm speaking under this heading Emergency Europe Patterns and Prospects. The point of departure for what I want to talk about is that I think we often look at the European Union with an accent on what it is able or unable to achieve in policy terms. The evaluation of the European Union, to use the the language of the European Union, is often an evaluation based on output legitimacy. It seems to me this is partly simply because uh, this is an order that's somehow just about still founded within living memory. When we think of the nation state, I think we tend, without thinking too much about it, we perhaps think of it as an inherited order something that we receive from the past. Of course, all of us as political scientists say there's nothing primordial about the nation-state. This is a very recent phenomenon as well. But nonetheless, the everyday experience, I would submit, of the state is of an order that is inherited from something before us. Whereas the European Union, although, of course, time is moving on and... The generation for which it is something founded within their lifetime is ever small, and nonetheless, I think there's something about it that is received partly because it's additional to states. It's received as something which is somehow there because it was chosen to be there—a choice. It was made. It was something that was uh, that could have been absent. And so, I think this is an important point of departure because, I for me, it's, it says something about why we habitually tend to think about the European in. in in output terms, whether it's able to rise to the challenges that it encounters, because it's almost as though, I mean, what's the point of it if it can't solve problems? It was invented. It was created. It didn't have to be there. It wasn't simply inherited from a past that was shading into pre-memory and into history. It's something that was there because it was created. And that which we create, I think, is often held to a standard to do with, is it useful? Is it worth having created? Is it something that was responsive to the problems for which it might have been produced. So all of this then to say that I think often when the European Union is discussed, and particularly when it's discussed in the context of of crises, of hard circumstances, um, the accent is often on whether it's able to rise to the occasion, its policymakers are judged on the capacity to respond to the policy problems of the day. And I think the danger of that is clearly that one might underplay the way in which those responses are marshaled and the extent to which, in the name of meeting certain ends, policy ends, solving problems, that the questions of of procedure of how politics is conducted are liable to be downplayed. I don't want to overstate this point, but I do think there is nonetheless a kind of an accent on the evaluation of the EU in terms of its problem-solving capacity, which sometimes downplays the extent to which it how is that problem-solving sought uh, and uh, what comes with that. And so in this book that I wrote a, a few years ago, the effort was rather to switch that focus, to think about the what I call the emergency politics of the EU, with a particular focus on the 2010s as something where we should be thinking very much about these more procedural aspects. If emergency politics is a sort of simple formula, exceptional measures for exceptional times, this is the way in which policies and and measures are explicitly justified. Well, that is clearly something where we can, on the one hand, think about whether those uh, exceptional measures rise to the challenge of the brute problems of the day, whether they are problems of Eurozone economics, whether they are problems of the pandemic, whether they extend into, into geopolitics, but we can also think about the exceptionalism, in other words, the departure from political norms, legal norms that is the other side of that equation of exceptional measures for exceptional times. so this book, which I wrote in in two thousand and nineteen well, published in two thousand and nineteen, was an effort to trace out this idea of exceptionalism as something that emerges in eu politics. My focus then, of course, was pre pandemic I was focused on mainly the Events of the 2010s, although I try to give it some historical perspective in the larger story of European integration. And I mean, very roughly, I was saying that what one tends to see beyond any one particular crisis moment is a pattern of exceptionalism, of measures that somehow escape legal norms, political norms. And when I use norms, of course, I'm partly talking about norms as ideals, not just norms as kind of routines. The EU, of course, is something which is in some sense always in flux. So when we're talking about exceptionalism, the breaking or escaping of norms, we're holding it to, to normative standards as well as to thinking about simply how habitual ways of, of acting are interrupted. That this is something that is a, a kind of common thread that runs through much of the policies of the of the Eurozone period, and as I would uh, I would argue to some degree thereafter as well. So the book is looking at things like the Troika sort of exceptional vehicles, if you like, of, of authority adopted under the pressure of events and justified as adoptions under the pressure of events. The economic field is clearly one of the um, key ones to look at, but I think, as the book tries to do, one can look beyond it in the sphere of migration, in the sphere of geopolitics as, as well. Perhaps we'll come back to that later on. And the book tries to revisit some of the ideas on this theme developed in the state context. So the pitfalls of emergency methods of government, forms of government that in the name of responding to urgent threats invite some type of deviation from legal and political norms. This is clearly a long-standing theme of politics within the state and indeed before the state, going back to, I don't know, Machiavelli, but also through many thinkers of of modern politics. It's a theme in the sense of uh, it can be observationally observed, but also in political thought There's a huge amount of philosophy about, well, when is it appropriate to, if you like, care more about solving emergency situations, stabilising emergency situations, uh, and to care less about the procedural constraints that in normal times might bind executive powers. This is a long-standing theme, both of uh, historical observation and in terms of normative political theory as well. And the book revisits some of that body of thought to see what can be said about the European Union in that light. So, I don't want to go deep into particular points here, but clearly much can be said about uh, the democratic implications of exceptionalism. Much and often is the focus in the literature on the state on this question on the implications for the law. In other words, I think many people writing on these themes are lawyers rather than political scientists um, in the state context. But the implications for democracy, the implications for, for law, the implications for the distribution of power. Anyone who's had any encounter with this type of literature will be familiar with these tropes that uh, emergencies are the hour of the executive. So this is a moment in which power might be concentrated in certain either institutions or even elements within institutions. Perhaps even that institutions themselves start to give way to individuals within them and networks that straddle institutions. So themes of executive empowerment, of the democratic implications, of the legal implications are ones that I think are of enduring significance also for the EU, but are much discussed in in other contexts too. And one of the arguments I make in, in the book is that there are particular vulnerabilities of international politics to these patterns of exceptionalism, of emergency politics understood as exceptional measures for exceptional circumstances. And I would simply highlight at this point two, one of which being to do with constitutional structure. The European Union, I think from its inception for ideological reasons to do with the influences on it at a formative stage, has often been very wary of hierarchies, of coercion, of the kind of constraints that in other contexts might be at least attempted to be applied to executive power as a way of limiting what it can do and making it accountable in ostensibly exceptional moments. And of course, in the EU case, the constitutional structure is somewhat different. We are less likely to see hierarchies coercive as opposed to consensual methods of decision making. Much debate about whether the EU has a constitution, but I think it certainly doesn't have a political constitution of this kind that binds executive power in the way that at least some nation states try to do and often, of course, fail to do. And of course, this has got its origins as well. Go back to Jean Monnet, and he's someone who emphasises the importance of exactly not being bound in this fashion to cultivate a kind of atmosphere of emergency as a way of ensuring that decisions can be taken, that consensus can be achieved. And another element that I would highlight here, simply on the diagnostic front, I want to say a bit more in a moment on the um, sort of what does this imply for the EU in the present and in the future. But on the diagnostic front, if one can tell a longer story that is wider than simply how authorities act in particular crisis, but if there is some sort of template here that straddles a longer period of time, if it's partly to do with the structure of international politics and the weak constitutionalization of international politics, I think it's also something to do with what you might call the ethos of international politics. And it comes back to something I mentioned at the very beginning, in which you might say a kind of instrumentalism of the transnational sphere. The EU institutions are set up, tied to particular purposes. We may have come across this phrase of a purposive association as a way of characterising the EU. It's something that is often rationalized as having particular purposes attached to it to do with the markets first and foremost. And or you know, I think of the, the mandate of the ECB. And to the extent that one is dealing with a, an arrangement of authorities where certain goals are sort of written into those institutions, into the, into the fabric of what they exist for, then, to use this term, instrumentalism, I think you might say there's a kind of primacy of ends over means in that context, because the ends are what the whole thing exists for. It exists to achieve certain ends. Of course, those ends are not fixed in time. They evolve over time. But I would suggest that there is a sort of a, an outlook, an ethos that is associated with this type of authority beyond the state, whereas statal authority is somehow meant to be independent of particular ends. This is the claim of democracy. Whether it's honoured, of course, is another question. But the claim of democracy is that we can set, set the ends of public authority and revise the ends of public authority. That they are something that is possible to change in light of public opinion. But that's, I think, rather different from, I would say, international institutions in general, but perhaps especially the EU where this they are closely tied to particular ends. The claim is not that those ends can be revised in line with public opinion, at least hitherto, but rather that this is what they're set up to do. They are set up to achieve certain ends, the primacy of ends over means. So with the implication then that when those ends are in question, then pretty much the means have to be bent to achieving the ends, to do whatever it takes to achieve certain pre-commitments. So what have I said so far? That my interest is in a kind of formula of politics, which I call emergency politics, the idea of, uh, in the name of exceptional circumstances, finding the license to do things which are somehow at odds with what we might call political and legal norms, where those are understood both in terms of uh, hitherto practice, but perhaps more importantly in terms of, kind of uh, the norms that we might hold modern authority to, that in the name of responding to emergency situations, EU authorities, especially in the 21st century, but with a, a history and a set of structural vulnerabilities that go back before that, have a disposition to sidestep procedural constraints such that they are in the name of safeguarding those ends in adversity. So in the second half, and I guess I've got about 15 minutes, in the second half of uh, what I wanted to say, I wanted to think a little bit about if there's any merit to that kind of big picture claim about how the EU has tended to operate. And if there's anything to the kind of concerns that I very briefly alluded to, to do with democracy, to do with law to do with concentration of power in, in certain parts of the system, in ad hoc forms such as the European Council, the Eurogroup and so on. If there's anything to that formula, what are the possible responses to that? What, what does one make of that? If one finds it unsatisfactory, of course clearly the first response could be said there's nothing unsatisfactory about this, this is what European politics looks like and this is precisely the sense in which we should not hold EU politics to the kind of standards that we might want to hold the state too. So clearly one response to the thing, kind of things I'm saying, if one accepts that they even intersect with reality, would be to say it's not a problem. This is simply how it looks in that context. But if one says there's anything to feel dissatisfied about in that model of public authority that, at key moments at least, is um, said to be licensed to escape from the kind of uh, constraints that in normal times might be said to apply, well, what does that entail? Well, I guess one line of response, which you see a lot, I think especially after the pandemic, but also before that, would be something along the lines of the following. It would say, yes, the way the EU and its institutions respond to hard times at the present is a bit of a mess. It's a bit of a chaotic, sometimes it's a power grab. And the answer is sort of to pre-codify emergency powers. In other words, emergency politics, as I've been describing it, can perhaps be summarised as uncodified emergency politics, where for some then the conclusion might be, well, maybe what one should do is, yes, accept that there is a kind of structure to power where sometimes there are quiet times and sometimes there are difficult times, there are crises, and these need to be dealt with. We can't simply turn the other way or expect public authorities to do so, but the answer is to sort of prepare in advance for those moments so that it's clear who should be doing What, so that there is a kind of structure, if you like, to the politics of emergency. And again, you know, there's a a long standing discussion in the political theory of the state about how there should be exactly some constitutional provisions for emergencies, for the declaring of emergencies, for the handling of emergencies, for the conclusion of emergencies, and that the well ordered polity is the one that goes into difficult situations with those types of uh, special provisions in place, because then at least there's some predictability, there's some kind of accountability, you know, who's meant to be taking decisions in difficult moments. In a piece I recently had in JCMS, I quoted uh, Martin Zellmayer, the former senior commission official, who puts it something like this, I think it would be useful to have in the EU a mechanism ready to be activated in times of crisis that temporarily allow it to make decisions in a simpler and faster way to respond to crisis situations with determination. So kind of tapping into these ideas that uh, the EU is often um, uncoordinated, messy in its crisis response and that the answer is to perhaps have provisions to accelerate and to clarify decision making in those particular moments. So this is one kind of line of potential response to this. My concerns here would be less with feasibility and more with desirability. I mean, any kind of reform in the EU has questions of feasibility that one might to it and clearly any type of argument that says well if the problem of emergency politics in the EU is that executive powers make it up as they go along maybe the council is able to take certain decisions which are hard to scrutinize which are hard to reverse later on if this is the way it is then good luck trying to do anything about it because the very people that would have to approve any change are those that are likely to resist that change because they're the beneficiaries of such a setup. So questions of feasibility kind of apply to anything that one might start to think about in this context. But for me, perhaps more interesting are questions of desirability. And here I'm partly interested in, again, other contexts in which emergency powers are discussed. Clearly the classic, you know, the reference point that everyone goes to when they start talking about exceptional powers in an emergency is ancient ideas of dictatorship, the Roman figure of the dictator as a way of having special provisions for often times of war, potentially times of civil war, but some kind of authority empowered to take decisions in an irregular way, in a way that is much less responsive to a wider set of authorities beyond the individual, but constrained in time. Without going further into the analogues between ancient dictatorship and and modern statal or transstatal authority, Maybe I would highlight simply one thing. That model of dealing with exceptional situations presupposes the idea that they're short-lived. The dictator figure you know, tended to be empowered for the campaigning season, six months for the waging of a conflict, with the idea that at the end of the campaigning season, the emergency comes to an end, and normal ways of dealing with decision-making can be resumed. And it seems to me that this is precisely how we cannot plausibly look at the major policy challenges of the presence. Insofar as we see the emergency politics I'm describing in the EU, but also in in States around the world, these are responses, I would say, at least at some level. They're partly inspired by the structure of authority and the incentives of authority, but they're also inspired at some level by longer-term pathologies of of politics, of economy, of climate. Maybe we'll want to say something about climate emergencies as well in due course. But if exceptional measures for exceptional times has a tradition of thinking that goes all the way back to the Roman Republic, it's often been accompanied with the idea that this is perhaps a way of organising authority that can be legitimised because one can make this division between normal times and exceptional times and have exceptional measures for those exceptional times. But what if the crises of the present are endemic problems as opposed to ones that have natural temporal horizons to them? The danger of creating mechanisms for decision-making in emergencies then would be the danger of superficial responses to deep problems or a kind of permanent politics of emergency, if in play are uh, pathologies of politics of capitalism and climate which are are deeper. And I would also add that um, creating emergency powers is in some sense something that gives authorities a fallback option when faced with policy challenges. If in this imagined world in which one created codified exceptional measures, exceptional authority for emergencies, to the extent that those powers exist, you give a reason for governments, officials, whatever the particular context in question is, to avoid taking hard policy decisions, to avoid getting to the fundaments of the problems of politics, capitalism and climate, as I mentioned them, insofar as Emergency measures are a kind of trump card that can be played at the end, a way of responding to crises at the last moment in a fashion that gives reason to allow them to fester. There's no reason to tackle the fundamental drivers if emergency powers can be relied on as a kind of way of mopping up hard circumstances. So all of that then basically to say, if one way of thinking about what does one, how does one change a political order that seems to rely on exceptionalism as a way of getting through hard times, if one solution would be to say, well, make sure that what it does in those hard times is clearly identifiable ex ante so that everyone knows what's meant to happen, so that everyone can hold the relevant authorities accountable, this would be some type of improvement on the more fluid, murky type of decision making that we've seen so much of in the 2010s and and onwards well I would say there are limits to that response it may not solve all problems in terms of feasibility and potentially if it were instituted it could make things worse it gives a license for coping with failure if you like and then I mentioned this paper of mine that's uh, only recently come out which is an effort to try and continue the discussion initiated with others with the book. The other kind of major option I look at is not so much codifying exceptional measures, but thinking about constitutional reform of a more far-reaching kind. So instead of creating, if you like, uh, sort of embedding the idea of norm, exception, norm as the structure of decision-making, rather thinking about how one can reshape political authority so it doesn't have to appeal to exactly those exceptional measures, powers in certain crisis moments. And the points that I make here, of course, somehow are intended to connect back to some of the diagnostic points I make earlier on about uh, the constitutional structure, about the instrumentalist ethos of transnational institutions, simplifying executive power, strengthening legislative power, Ultimately, changes that must go beyond institutional changes to power in in parties, in civil society, more broadly. And as I tried to claim in this paper, this is a more appropriate, although perhaps highly ambitious, and as with everything with the EU, with questions of feasibility written in capital letters attached to it. But something that at least takes seriously the kind of drivers of emergency politics in the European Union and the dangers of a kind of a half measure of codifying exceptionalism, as something that is uh, notionally occasional but potentially much repeated and doing little to change the conditions that it responds to and is legitimated in the name of. Finally just to close with the feasibility question as I said almost anything one can think of in terms of EU reforms big or small ambitious or trivial always comes up against some feasibility problem and it may well be that there is no big constitutional form or indeed minor constitutional reform to be had in the European Union, or at least that these opportunities are so few and far between that the weight may be indefinite. And so third and final take that one may have on this it comes back to something I said earlier on. I mean, maybe one, one should say that I think how things are at the moment is perhaps not so far from actually what one should be aiming for. Maybe we are not so far from a defensible model, but that simply it needs to be contested more. That executive authority, if it is prone to informality, to deinstitutionalization, to ways of acting in crisis moments which are hard to track and do indeed raise problems of a democratic kind, of a constitutional kind, and so on. That the only way that you can really deal with that is not by making institutional changes, constitutional changes. That all you can do is try and constrain executive authority through publicity, through public opinion, through retrospective contestation. Again, this is a familiar debate within. Stateal statal context of emergency powers. Can you constrain power ultimately through institutional change, or is it ultimately always about the constraining effect of a wider public? And this may be, given the challenges of, uh, of institutional, constitutional change in the European Union, it may be as good as it gets for the time being. And in the book, I try and talk a little bit about you know momentary contestations of EU exceptionalism by agents such as uh, Syriza, as efforts to, to kind of contest and to, to change, if you like, the incentive structure for future iterations of emergency power. People often say, well, there's been no troika with the pandemic, or, and you might say, well, precisely so. Perhaps it's exactly because the politicization of exceptionalism in the 2010s has an effect, and one shouldn't be too quick to write off what can be done through non institutional reform through simply the politicization, if you like, of exceptionalism as a way of giving executive authorities reasons to do things differently or less overtly in future crises. So my conclusion would be roughly this. Unregulated emergency politics in the EU is a problem. That's everything I started talking about at the beginning. A codified emergency regime could make things worse. In other words, codifying powers for the exceptional moment is actually perhaps not a way to improve things, but to embed some of the problems at hand. A constitutional overhaul of a more radical kind is desirable, but retrospective contestation is perhaps all that's feasible. I imagine I've probably spoken for at least half an hour, and so I shall stop speaking at this point. You are listening to the podcast of the College of Europe.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for that. I think we have a lot for us to discuss. So let me just uh, set out my thoughts. So I think, Jonathan, you've been one of the people probably most central in developing this category of emergency politics. not in its original connotation, but in the contemporary application of it to the European Union, Um, thinking through the meaning of emergency politics, conceptually, the political implications, the legal constitutional implications of emergency politics, the nuances of this category, the value of this category, um, also the normative dimension to whether this is a good or bad development for the European Union. And so I think it's uh, great to be able to discuss this with you today, Um, and it'll be interesting to see what the the Q&A brings out. Let me make a few remarks, and let me, in the spirit of this uh, in-conversation discussion, let me push the boat out in my comments to see whether we can provoke some discussion. So there were three things I wanted to talk about. One was about the notion of boundaries. One was about the language of emergency. And the final one was, in the spirit of Lenin, what should be done? So first of all, about boundaries. So as you were talking, and this is something I've been thinking about for a while based on your existing work. To be honest, this is something that I've struggled with myself. How much of all of this is really to do with the European Union? So I find myself slightly torn in a slightly schizophrenic mode. So in a sense, the European Union is clearly decisive and central to this mode of emergency politics and the symptoms of it and the consequences of it. In another sense, uh, it may be fairly epiphenomenal and, in fact, somewhat insignificant. Some of what you describe as the expressions of emergency politics seem to be associated with some pathological features of advanced post-industrial societies. Um, If we had an audience here that was predominantly made up of US citizens, some of this would not be news, this would be current concerns, very relevant. And so far outside of the European Union, this is very relevant. So this issue about boundaries, I think, would be quite interesting to try and clarify. One possibility is that the European Union catalyzes or pushes further some of the dimensions of emergency politics, but is not the origin of it. Um, that's one possibility. Taking this a little bit further, you framed uh, at the beginning of your talk this whole discussion in terms of inputs and outputs. And I think you're right, I think we tend to think of the European Union as an institution that can deliver certain benefits for citizens. Certainly for European officials who come here and speak to students here at the college and their way of seeing the world, it's very much about showing why we matter for European citizens in a everyday sense. So the orientation is towards outputs. What you suggest is that that neglects the obvious um, other side of the coin, which is the role of inputs to any sort of institution that makes collective decisions. And I wanted to try and put you on the spot here a little bit. So, do predominantly output-orientated institutions always make bad decisions? Is emergency politics, as a decision-making procedure, always likely to generate worse decisions than any alternative? Can you make good decisions if you're really orientated institutionally just towards outputs rather than inputs? It may be the case that you can't make good decisions without inputs, in fact, because the relationship between inputs and outputs is, so, is such a close one. So if I was to put you on to the spot, I think of two obvious recent decisions made by the European Union collectively where its orientation was towards outputs. So one was on vaccines, There was a decision, obviously, in the context of COVID to pursue a collective procurement route. That was not a self-evident thing. The alternative was that different member states, because this was not something settled already in European law, that different member states should try and pursue their own vaccines. That was not the route that was taken. The consequence was that compared with Israel, the United States, the United Kingdom the EU was very slow in finally delivering vaccines. However, it did so at a much better, much more advantageous, much lower price than some of these countries. If you look at the cost of vaccines for Israel, it was phenomenally high compared with what the EU paid for its own delivery of vaccines. And that was a big factor in why the collective procurement process was uh, pursued, as well as avoiding competition between smaller and larger member states on vaccines. So... For an institution orientated towards producing outputs, was that the right call to make? Is that in the sense of successful or unsuccessful emergency politics? The second one is on Ukraine. Here we have an institution that collectively has decided to unequivocally back a proxy war between the US and Russia on the territory of Ukraine. Was that the right call for an institution orientated towards producing outputs for citizens rather than being orientated towards inputs? There are obvious costs and consequences with this decision. Was that the right call? So the question, first of all, is insofar as we accept that emergency politics has become the decision-making procedure uh, de facto for the European Union, maybe it makes the right call in some of the instances. So do you think that's right or do you think that's not? Can institutions that are essentially legitimated through their outputs actually make good decisions or are they always destined to make the wrong call because they're institutionally configured to fail that's the first thought the second thought is about the language of emergency so if i think of your book on this so with 2019 written in the wake of the euro crisis i remember a time where crisis was not the permanent condition of european integration i think we both do there was Successive crises historically where the EU seemed to make a leap forward. Um, but what we seem to have entered into is this era where we have one crisis after the other. So there was the euro crisis, I can see that. Then we had the refugee crisis. Then we had, following fairly swiftly after that, the COVID 19 crisis. Then we have the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022. The backdrop for all of this is an ongoing and deepening climate crisis. I think there are Many people here um, who certainly have no recollection of 9-11 or the war on terror, whose kind of uh, own political awareness is essentially forged more or less around the time of the financial crisis, maybe even actually the whole we are the 99% is a historical slogan. So emergency politics as a category doesn't have much purchase on a period where everything is always constituted by a succession of emergencies and crises. So I wonder whether the language of emergency politics needs to be jettisoned, possibly. Experientially, crisis has become the norm. Now, you were talking about what happens when emergency politics becomes sort of almost permanent, and maybe that means we need to think about constitutionalization. so I'll talk about it in a moment. But I just wonder whether... We're in a situation where everyone is using this language of emergency politics, um, something that's become popular since the age of Jean-Claude is polycrisis. I don't know who and his team coined the term polycrisis. Maybe it was somebody else and they picked it up, but it's become fairly prominent. Um, a colleague of mine in Cambridge likes to talk about um, hard times that we live in. I think we need a different sort of language to describe something which is so normal that it's now just the starting point. It's not an exception anymore. It's deeply, deeply the norm. So that's, I think, a, a second point. The final point is then this question about what should be done. So reading your piece in, uh, in JCMS made me think of this phrase that I associate with the German sociologist Wolfgang Strick, um, who once observed there are some problems to which there are no solutions. And I wondered whether emergency politics was one of those. So I certainly, I can see why an emergency constitution is problematic. It's certainly very oxymoronic. But I think the the thing that it made me sort of wonder about a bit is play around with this idea of constitutionalization versus this retrospective contestation. But there seems to be a sort of a, a basic question here, which is quite a practical question, which is in the age of all of these cascading crises... Is it the case that regional unions are the best solution to them, however they are constitutionally configured? And that's, I think, an open question. There is definitely a sense in which all of these crises, so the climate crisis, for example, um, some of the economic crises, clearly the pandemic, they are characterized by high levels of interdependence. They seem to affect states across borders in very profound ways. So you would imagine that the response to that must best be done at the level of these regional unions, I suppose. However, it then seems that the way in which these regional organisations function is that they tend to orientate themselves towards these emergency politics ways of making decisions. Now maybe that's a coincidence, maybe it's not, but that seems to be fairly consistent and so the question then seems to be in the face of all of these crises is this the best way to deal with these decisions i think instinctively we would say yes because they're highly interdependent but maybe in fact they are not precisely for the reasons that you describe the final point that i would make just in terms of what is to be done is my view looking back at the emergence of what you describe as uh, the eu's emergency politics there is a sense in which Post-2005, when the project of legitimizing the European Union through a constitutional treaty failed, something which then emerged in the wake of that was a way of legitimizing the European Union through the succession of crises. The consequence is that emergency politics is really baked into the post-2005 European Union, especially the kind of sort of post-Lisbon EU. And so however you try and reform it, that is really central to it. And there are some features, whatever you think about reforming it, there are some features that are so central to the European Union, the way it functions today, that make it hard to imagine how you could get rid of it. So the emergency powers side of the EU is really connected to the role of the European Council and the role of the Council as a crisis manager. That's been a big part of how the Council has become so dominant institutionally. So the dominance of the member states and the European Council is a big part of the post-2000 European Union. Um, the wider public that you speak of that was able to contest these decisions, I wonder where that would come from exactly. So I think that would be equally problematic in terms of feasibility. So I suppose the kind of final point is that emergency politics has become the raison d'être of a post constitutional European Union. And in that respect, overcoming emergency politics seems to me to raise questions about whether the European Union is the right framework to think about solutions to all of these crises or, or not.
1: Okay, brilliant. So thank you, Chris, for for all those uh, points. And um, let me take a, a few moments to go through them. So the first question, as I interpreted, is basically how much is this story of the EU as opposed to a story in which the EU gets caught up, but possibly, as you say, in a kind of epiphenomenal way. It's not really where it's at. Why, why write a book about the EU and try and develop these ideas with reference to that particular context If you mentioned the US, you know, these are debates that seem to arise even in heavily, ostensibly constitutionalized orders or orders where people like to claim that the constitutional foundations are strong. So what is the place of the EU in a story which seems to touch on public authority in many different contexts at the same time? And you you gave me a few possible answers to this, one being that possibly it uh, catalyzes, I think was your term, that it sort of accentuates problems that we may find elsewhere, which are not unique to it, but somehow that they play out in a distinctive fashion, that this is the highest form, you might say, of tendencies that are not unique to this. Maybe another element that I would add to that would be that the consequences may be more severe in the EU context, that the reversibility of measures taken as exceptional measures is going to be harder in weakly constitutionalized orders such as the EU compared to a state context where you have elections, where you have governments that are able to, and at least widely acclaimed as opportunities to kind of, as a broom to clear out the, uh, the mess created by the last four or five years. Yes, it seems to me that in a context such as the EU, precisely because you're dealing with a kind of a non-sovereign order, or at least where sovereignty is up for, for contestation, the unity of will that can be created in a moment of emergency when a wide range of actors can be brought to the conclusion that some kind of action is required, that unity of will is much harder to recreate later on in a structure such as the European Union when you have many different Member states, when you have different EU institutions, supranational, intergovernmental, and so on. And so the reversibility of things done under the sign of emergency is that much harder in this kind of context. Whereas in the state, although, of course, anyone who dips their toe into these debates knows that one of the major concerns is how things can get locked in, the ratchet effects of emergency powers, at least to the extent that we retain some faith in the democratic method. We can hope for the reversibility of exceptional interventions. We can go out and vote and hope that what was done under the sign of emergency in one period can be changed later on. I think that's a lot harder in the EU context. And so I would say the stakes. It's not just that this is a kind of the highest form, potentially, of problems that are manifest elsewhere, and the highest form in the sense that I gave you these ideas earlier on to do with the constitutional features of the EU, to do with this instrumentalist ethos that I associate with purposive associations. But it seems to me it's not just about this amplifying effect, it's also about the stakes are larger when it's that much harder to row back on what is done in the name of exceptional circumstances. So all of that to say, I mean I I very much take your point that uh, these are debates had all around the world. They're had at the national level. We have states that live in in states of emergency. So there's nothing unique to the EU. But I would say that we can see with particular visibility both some of the drivers, but also the stakes are magnified in this context. Another interesting question you posed was uh you know, maybe emergency politics sometimes gets it right. Maybe good things can come out of this, or at least possibly one might be able to draw that conclusion. I think part of your question was, is it possible to separate out an evaluation of the effects of decision-making of this kind from the wider concerns one might have about its procedural aspects, about its um, embedded in democracy, and so on? And here your, your examples were to do with the vaccines, to do with Ukraine as kind of candidate examples of good things, coming out the other side regardless, all these potentially good things coming out regardless of the ways in which they were achieved. I mean, to take the vaccine example, I wouldn't be quick to applaud what the EU does in this period. I'm someone who's been following this debate with the European Ombudsman and the European Commission about how the contract with Pfizer was negotiated and I'm sure many of you have come across the challenges levied by the, the Ombudsman about how this is WhatsApp diplomacy. This is von der Leyen engaged in one-to-one negotiations with the head of Pfizer, where you know it's very hard, therefore, to make a proper evaluation of uh, what is the outcome to be judged here, because it's very opaque, precisely the criteria applied in what seems to be quite personalised decision-making, decision-making which is done in a medium which is deliberately hard to, to scrutinise later on, and that the best efforts of the authority responsible for making these things transparent later on seem to so far have run aground and so here I would say well the danger if that's if that's what happened there you know ultimately we're still reliant on a few newspaper sources and and leaks but if the vaccine story was a story of in my terms the head of the commission prioritizing results in other words that kind of instrumentalism I described we need to show some kind of progress on the vaccine thing in awareness that Britain and other countries are, are getting there faster. We, did, we need to get something done. In other words, the problem-solving ethos resulting in a form of heavily personalised, de-institutionalised negotiation, which retrospectively it's very hard to evaluate. That's problematic. Individuals are more vulnerable to special interests than collectives. I shall say that axiomatically. You can ask me whether it's really true. But I shall claim, I shall claim that it is the case that when power is concentrated on particular individuals, then the capacity to powerful interest to to influence them is magnified. And certainly the capacity to scrutinise whether that happening is much compromised. So I would be wary with that example of saying the price at which the vaccines were ultimately agreed is the measure of whether something good came out of this process because what this process, I think, was all about was informal decision-making in the name of getting results under the pressure of emergency situation, where that mode of decision-making becomes very hard to hold accountable, possibly prone to who knows what type of uh, quid pro quos in the process of negotiation there, and where you know, large companies can exactly bring to bear a lot of power, or if their negotiating partner is possible to individualise, In exactly that fashion. So I'll accept your conceptual possibility that there may be situations in which we shouldn't be too quick to denigrate the outcomes of emergency politics. I probably would stick to my democratic guns and say you can't really evaluate outputs without some kind of process that decides the criteria by which you evaluate them, who has a right to influence, and who has a right to judge. Those outputs. So at some point, I'm probably going to say, no, you can't separate outputs. But let, I, I, one probably could go some way in claiming that they've, not every form of emergency decision making obviously has nefarious outcomes to it. But I'd be, I wouldn't be too quick to come to that conclusion because that's precisely what's at stake the capacity to make these judgments when decision making is deinstitutionalized, personalized, heavily concentrated on particular figures within executive authority working off piste informally it becomes very hard to say with confidence that this is effective are we in an age that is so much the age of emergency politics that it ceases to be meaningful to talk about it in those terms what critical work can one do with a concept that seems to be applicable to almost anything in the present my feeling is that one can still do plenty of critical work with it something that i'm increasing interest in is ideas of a climate emergency and what comes with this type of uh, what you might call emergency politics from below, in other words, not the emergency politics of established institutions wanting to preserve the status quo, but what you might call the effort to change society by agents that maybe lack institutionalised power, but possibly are trying to influence it. And those advocating that we think about climate change in terms of a climate emergency, I think should certainly pose us this question whether do we have anything to get a critical handle on there? Is a climate emergency simply a kind of a, a symptom of the times? So that Every major problem has to be formulated in these terms because it's the only way to get attention. It's the only way to get things done. I'm more interested in exactly saying, well, no, such ways of framing the biggest problems of the day are things that we should actually try and uh, contest. We should not be willing to necessarily see climate change In terms of a climate emergency, things come with that way of thinking. Amongst the things that come with it, for example, would be, I would say, contemporary environmentalism is often a critique of representative democracy, sometimes a critique of the representative part of that, sometimes a critique of the democratic part of that. So in Extinction Rebellion, for example, there are many who would say, well, the problem is democracy itself. Maybe not many, I'd say it's still a minority within Extinction Rebellion. But there is a strand of opinion that would say the problem is democracy, because public opinion is perhaps insufficiently enlightened to respond to climate change as it is. And there would be others that would say, no, the problem is not democracy. The problem is not public opinion. The problem is representative democracy. The problem is the institutions of electoral democracy are so clogged up, embroiled in special interests and so on, that we should be direct Democrats. We should be pursuing, I don't know, citizen assemblies. We should be pursuing sortition and so on, that we should have a very different kind of democracy, but not a democracy scepticism. I think both of those are problematic ways of responding to the climate emergency, the climate situation that we find ourselves in. I don't have time to go into why that is, but it certainly seems that something comes with this notion of the climate emergency. It's not simply a mundane part of the furniture of everyday politics. Something comes with it. What comes with it is, and in this case from below, from those without institutional authority in many cases, a certain type of take on the place of representative democracy in fighting climate change. And what, for me... I think one that may actually hamper efforts to tackle climate change. I firmly believe that meaningful attempts to address climate change will have to go through representative democracy, and therefore the response can either be to step away from representation in general or for democracy in general. So, you know, that's stepping away from the EU context. But it's simply on one level to reaffirm your point. Emergency politics is everywhere. No one can make a single claim, it seems, in contemporary politics without invoking this language of emergency. But it seems to me that that doesn't make redundant the the critical apparatus that one might bring to bear upon that because meaningful things come... With that language and with the political strategies that go with it, which often are a kind of exceptionism, even in this case, the kind of attempt at civil disobedience is a kind of exceptionism. Things come with this, and I think one can critically examine them with the kind of uh, analytical tools that I've uh, I've been describing. So for me, simply to say the omnipresence of emergency politics is not reason to drop this way of uh, speaking and contesting, but reason to actually renew our efforts to uh, to apply it. And very finally, is this not so endemic to the EU these days, that there's something uh, perhaps slightly decadent about thinking about reforms that one perhaps oneself only thinks are uh, conceptual possibilities rather than political possibilities, and maybe that we should actually be thinking rather than reforming the EU with all the feasibility problems that attend that, thinking about other forms of doing politics that are not based on regional unions. I would simply say that uh, there's a transition Problem here. The EU is what we have at the moment, and any arguments for the superiority of other forms that depend on abolishing the EU have to negotiate all the dynamics that get unleashed in the process of transitioning from the structure we have at the moment to that world without the regional union, the world in which one might want to do politics without those formations. And those are transitions that bring a lot with them, and they may bring a very regressive politics with them. And so the principal interest that one might have in forms of politics other than the regional union, I think doesn't necessarily mean it answers the Leninist question of what to be done in plausible terms, because it may be a very bad political strategy. It may be something that leads you to a very regressive place, even if there's some principled appeal in thinking beyond the kind of uh, transnational union that we have at the moment. That's why I stick within the field of thinking what to do with the EU as opposed to the idea of abolishing the EU.
0: So, Thank you very much, Jonathan. I hope that um, I'm not suspending the democracy, but given the schedule, I unfortunately have to use my exceptional power to suspend the debate and uh, more importantly, of course, to thank you both uh, for, this, uh, for this debate and thanks the, the assembly uh, as well. so thank you so much for uh, all of this and thank you to all.
1: This was the College of Europe podcast, where we debate European affairs and more. This podcast is available on all listening platforms, such as Spotify and Europod. For more information on our website, www.coleurope.eu. Also, don't hesitate to engage with us on social media.